We present now a program from our tape library of important broadcasts of the year. This broadcast, entitled The Nonconformist in Our Society, is by Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas and was recorded at City College on the occasion of the first lecture in honor of the late distinguished philosopher Morris Raphael Cohen. Justice Douglas. I uh, was telling some of you earlier that um, we have in Washington, D.C., a very unique class of people who drive our taxicabs. They uh, are very knowledgeable. They know um, what causes the poor weather, the relationship of the atomic bomb to the population curve, <laughs> what the effect of the new tax bill will and will not be, who is going to be uh, the vice presidential candidate, and so on. And uh, they run second only to, in wisdom and uh, insight, into the New York taxi driver. <laughs> um, on the way to the uh, airport, uh, when I left Washington the other day, I uh, was in the back seat, and the man at the wheel was one of these very brilliant conversationalists. And we passed the archives building that has engraved on it the past is prologue. And so I, to test him out, I asked him what that meant. And he turned to read it and missed by a miracle two or three pedestrians <laughs> and said in an astonished voice, you don't know what that means? And I said, no, what does it past is prologue? What does that mean? He said, that means that you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> That is really the, uh, the text, uh, what I'm talking about today, although <clears throat> the mood of most of the things I say maybe seem very pessimistic, yet there is underlying behind it all a note of, of optimism expressed in the crude way by our taxi driver friend. Equality is the most important slogan heard around the world today. In the context of continental problems, it is the most highly personal of all issues and the most emotional one. For the ego is involved in every protest against inequality before the law. When the Chinese fill Tibet with three Chinese to one Tibetan, Tibetans become second class. Eastern Europe occupied by Russian forces also become second class. The Taiwanese became second class when the Kuomintang fastened its hold on Formosa. Apartheid has made Negroes in South Africa beggars for coexistence. The examples were multiplied under colonialism and they appear where a community becomes aligned against a minority as ties often do against Chinese or as the whites that some of our communities do as respects the Negroes. The law has, from time immemorial, laid an uneven hand on racial, religious, and ideological minorities, which led Anatole France to say with some sarcasm, the law in its majestic equality forbids the rich as well as the poor to sleep under bridges, to beg in the streets, and to steal bread. 
The present struggle for equality before the law is certainly a critical one, for without political equality, no society long remains viable. Without that political equality, seeds of ultimate disintegration are planted within the body politic, and the society is atomized into antagonistic groups, as in Cyprus today, rather than integrated into a harmonious whole. Hence, enforcing the command of the 14th Amendment that no state shall deny any person the equal protection of the laws is our manifest destiny. Yet, to preserve at a different level, inequality among men is, I hope, also part of our manifest destiny. For without a society that encourages diversities among men, while at the same time demanding that government treats, treat each alike, the status quo will try to make people fungible, march goose-step to some tune, and become mere statistical data. In our present mood, we are ill-equipped to prepare the oncoming generation for this world of diversity, because I think we've gone further down the road of conformity than most imagine. Robert O'Neill, in a recent statement concerning the teaching of the Bill of Rights in the schools, spoke of the wide gap between constitutional principle and adolescent attitude and one reason for its existence. He said, quote, this is the general suspicion which American teenagers reveal toward nonconformists, the intense pressures which demand strict adherence to the norms of the adolescent subculture. The problem arises from the fact that the central theme of the history of civil liberties in America has been the very nonconformity which adolescents seem to fear and reject. Those who vindicated the constitutional rights we cherish today, he says, were most often rebels, heretics, social outcasts, or misfits in some sense in their time. They are really the popular heroes to inspire the enthusiasm of today's teenagers for the causes for which the historic figures so valiantly fought. Moreover, he adds, in present terms, it may for this reason be difficult to arouse the respect and admiration of high school students for the rights of the individual who wants to move against or even outside the mainstream of his own society, yet it would be dishonest to imply that civil liberties are easily won or emerge by their own force from a complacent society. Something must surely be said of the efforts of courageous but often socially unpopular groups like Jehovah's Witnesses, the NAACP, and the early labor unions who forged unconstitutional trails we now tread with unconcern. And he added, but the difficulty of the whole exercise may be greatly compounded by the necessity to stress individualism and nonconformity to a student audience which does not hold those values in high esteem, quote, close. Uh, great leveling influences have reduced our capacity to understand, to evaluate, and to instruct our people as to the virtues and the excitement of the world of diversity. The affluent society is in part responsible. The witch hunt, symbolized by the late Senator Joseph McCarthy, had a light effect. And like the affluent society, it became a rather continuing force. For while McCarthy was censored, his tactics were perpetuated, and we've become insensitive to them. The search for ideological strays goes on apace. The toll taken by security agencies, while never known to the public, is great. The fear of jeopardizing an engineering degree or a PhD by appearing to be an offbeat person continues as a grave risk. It is a risk that confronts everyone who works for the federal or state governments or for any business in a contracting 
or subcontracting relation with any governmental agency. The test, the test O's have helped us look askance at a world of diversity rather than to look upon it with wonder. Loyalty O's, reminiscent of the ancient O's ex officio, have combed the entire lives of professors as well as government employees, seeking on threat of perjury affidavits that the person in question had never been a member of a subversive organization. The full force of the exaction can be realized only when it is remembered that subversive was commonly defined in such a way that an innocent person might belong to such an organization and yet not even know it. The disease has spread. People are pilloried for asserting constitutional rights. Witnesses are indeed called merely to see how many times they can be forced to invoke the Fifth Amendment. Other fears growing out of the risks of being alive in this nuclear age have produced an era where having no views at all often seems better than having controversial ones, and where having anti-Moscow or anti-Peking views as the solvent of the world's problems is the safest course of all. That has produced a hate campaign of alarming proportions, one measure of which were the placards on display in Dallas, Texas, November 21st, 1963 showing a picture of the late president and carrying the words, wanted for treason. Hate is no mood for teaching either the complexities or the wonders of a diversified world. The forces I've mentioned are only a few of those which have robbed America of much of her individuality, her tolerance, spontaneity, and, and originality, and lessened her capacity to, to understand and to teach world problems. A subtler, more pervasive force has probably been the dominance of science in our lives. Barzun in Science, the Glorious Entertainment, recently published, treats the matter provocatively. Science, he says, atomizes all branches of nature. Quote, science in short substitutes the complication of its system for the complexity of the world and what man needs is renewed contact with the world for he is inquisitive in a larger sense and is fulfilled through the curiosity of research. Where and what am I, whither bound and for what ends? These questions that man keeps asking all agree that science cannot answer. But the confirming cliche, science tells how, not why, is falsified in reality by the appearance of answer giving which science has been guilty of for over a century, quote, quote. Bernard Williams recently said, quote, to make it clear that science by itself cannot give us the clue to the social future is one task of those who educate scientists, just as it is a task of those who educate the others to make it clear that without some knowledge and sympathy with the sciences, no one will understand the social future or the past or the present either, quote, close. To cultivate uh, diversity in our society and to understand diversity in the world, we need wonder reverence and awe for man's ingenuity and sympathy and forgiveness for his shortcomings. We are, I fear, tending to lose those qualities and as we lose them we lose capacity to deal with the problems of the oncoming 21st century. Uh, boredom as well as unemployment comes with automation. An incurable malady possesses man when he only attends machines. There is no 
There, there is therapy in, in physical labor in making things with one's hand. Man to be whole must be creative, even though the limits of his creative ability are quickly reached. When the machine pushes man aside, it may take burdens off his back, but man needs burdens or at least challenges if he's to be healthy. We make science and technology our goal, though humanity often is better served in simpler economies. That is why the American example is not always revered in underdeveloped lands. There are knowledgeable and perceptive leaders in underdeveloped nations who do not want to duplicate in their country Detroit or Pittsburgh. Our obsession with cost accounting sends us pell-mell after science and technology. A factory's cost is our target. Social costs, the manner in which we deprive people of the opportunity to share in production, and the way by which we acquire a class of permanently unemployed and unemployable people have not been much in our consciousness. This preoccupation with costs has led us away from values that are more important than dollars in a healthy society. It has resulted in a waning confidence in the value or even the reality of non-statistical phenomena. The wonders and the eternal mysteries of life are in those imponderables, most of which are beyond the reach of science. The lichen has a built-in device that gives it capacity to reproduce with outside help or intervention. Year after year, the avalanche lily grows on the edge of snowbanks, producing delicate petals that have a consistency, a symmetry, and abandon that technology does not know. The ironwood tree of Australia lays on an outer layer of crisscrossed lattice that is so tough that an axe bounces off it and so strong and wiry that a gale will seldom level the tree even though termites have eaten out its inner core. How did its central intelligence learn without benefit of a slide rule that a given way to cellulose fabricated in the form of a hollow crisscrossed lattice cylinder is stronger than the same weight of material made into a round solid shaft? The examples from nature multiply endlessly from purple-eyed grass to the past flower to the pitcher plant. Science can, dis can displace or destroy, it can interpret, it can imitate, but science cannot take the place of the wonders of creation or explain them. The wonders of the outdoors are matched by the exciting diversity among men, from the American to the Russian to the Ghanaian ballet, from the keen eye of the Eskimo to the ear of the African pygmy who on a clear night hears the stars, from the flute of a Middle Eastern shepherd to the orchestration of Rachmaninoff, from the Song of Solomon to the poetry of Hyphus. The more one sees of flowers, the more one sees of man, the more convinced he is of a divine being. An eminent doctor recently said that after decades of work on the human ear, he'd come to believe in God. And I asked why, and he replied, God is the only possible explanation of earwax. <laughs> Francis Thompson, the English poet, said, Thou canst not stir a flower without troubling a star. And Rachel Carson added, But the poet's insight has not become a part of general knowledge. The ground lost by the humanities must be reclaimed if we are to be prepared for the life of diversity in the 21st century. That means challenging the status quo both of science and of Madison Avenue. 
Those who challenge that status quo face a very formidable task. The September 1963 issue of the American Behavioral Scientist contains an account of how the book Worlds in Collision by Velikovsky was lambasted in the 1950s by the scientific community in this country. Uh, Ralph E. Jurgens, in his article in that issue shows what pressure scientists put on the publisher not to publish the book. This publisher, who was in the textbook field, experienced a boycott against all his textbooks, a boycott engineered by the scientists through their various academies and associations. But as Jurgens shows, our explorations in outer space have concerned, confirmed some of Velikovsky's themes that a decade ago the scientists had ridiculed. Takini, in his articles in the same issue, writes of, quote, the frightening realization that the experts to whom is entrusted the human inheritance of scientific thought, our most precious possession, can be the victims of collective hysteria, period, quote, close. Our escape from the scientists and from Madison Avenue is essential, for they have, do not have the value judgments. They can show how an end can be reached, but they throw no light on whether from a social point of view, the end justifies the means. Where does one start with this new education? Certainly the first grade is not too soon. How does one go about it? By teaching the virtues and values of diversity and some of the social costs of so-called progress. Exposure of the young to nature under the guidance of sensitive and knowledgeable adults is one necessary starting point. This is virtually impossible in modern cities of asphalt and concrete where even playgrounds are paved. It means planning ahead so that blighted areas are reclaimed and returned to nature so that our suburbia retain woodlands and swamps immune from throughways and other developments. Our urban plight is due to the fact that we've left our future in the hands of engineers and landscape artists. We need to bring in the botanists, the zoologists, the biologists, the ornithologists, and the geologists if wonder, reverence, and awe are to become values in our society. Every school needs a nature trail, and every person, adult or young, needs a bit of wilderness if wonder, reverence, and awe are to be cultivated. Our wilderness areas are fast disappearing. Science and technology have transformed our concept of recreation. Recreation today is not generally related to physical exertion, but the transportation by auto, to picnic grounds, to scenic lookouts, to a place where other people are engaged in exercise or games. The, par the car people urge now needs to go everywhere engineers can build a road, but once a road enters, the wilderness is at an end, because loggers usually go where roads go, and all the debris of civilization follows roads, and roads are a death sentence to the quiet and repose of wilderness sanctuaries. And road means the ends of roads mean the end of certain species of game, such as elk that need large buffer zones to survive. A return to the mysteries of nature is necessary for members of a society that honors diversity and teaches it. That return requires many paths. It entails, among other things, the inculcation of a new land ethic. Those who streamed through Cumberland Gap headed west saw mostly unbroken forests. And those barriers had to be leveled so that farms could be established, towns built, and a network of roads constructed. First the axe and later the bulldozer became our symbol of power and achievement, our mark of distinction. There are also the Russians, 
symbol, whom we uh, parenthetically resemble in many particulars. The capitalist desire for profit has often been cited as a source of our destructive tendencies. But the destructive tendencies of Homo sapiens antedate free enterprise. They have marked every empire that ever held the Middle East and every regime that has ever ruled China. The, level of, the leveler has had no political, one political ideology. The leveler of forests is indeed the extrovert, whether he be capitalist, socialist, or dictator. The energies of the extroverts must be redirected lest every valley be paved and every mountain peak have a chairlift. <laughs> that means the adoption of a, of a new land ethic. If we are to have a new land ethic, the child of five needs a new symbol of American power. He needs to be directed not to the bulldozer, but to the wildlife and the wildflowers of the woodlands and to the endless wonders of nature and of men also, irrespective of their race, their creed, or their color. We must reintroduce into education insight into the ways in which the twin gods of science and technology are often destructive of man's welfare. Modern inventions cannot only wipe out all life through firestorms fire caused by explosions high above the earth, they can also surely, though slowly, poison man by imperceptible degrees. The dangers of strontium-90 should be introduced into the classroom. The reasons why manufacturers of sensitized products such as Eastman Kodak now have cracking stations as far west as Hawaii and how they keep their plants from contamination through control of the clothes of the workers should be in our textbooks. The incidence of strontium-90 in beef, milk, and other articles of food should also have a prominent place in our textbooks. The warnings of Sir Bernard Lovell on the threat to life on this earth by reason of our experiments in outer space that destroy ozone and permit ultraviolet radiation should be emphasized in classrooms. The effects of automobile exhausts on truck gardens and their products that reach our tables should be laid bare in textbooks. It took Rachel Carson in her book Silent Spring to bring through to public consciousness the dangers in pesticides, dangers to the ecological balance in the world, dangers to the health of human beings. Madison Avenue is glamorized, innocent appearing, but lethal products of our factories. Their dangers need understanding, not by scientists and officials alone, but by, by the housewives who, after all, are the ones that buy them and use them. No course in home economics today should be complete without them. Geography books should explain why the world around us has been visibly destroyed by modern technological practices for the benefit of a few vested interests and to the detriment of the masses. The oncoming generation should know that their inheritance of rivers filled with industrial waste and sewage sludge is man-made and preventable. The oncoming generation should know how the National Forest Service protects lands against erosion as a result of logging, but how absent such regulation rivers run red. And the story of the veritable ruination of the Potomac, one of the great national rivers, should be in every geography book. Geography books should tell about strip mining, how it has ruined large acres in eastern Illinois, and how it promises to ruin, in the years ahead, most of Appalachia. This practice not only utterly destroys a mountain, it leaves spoil banks that cause flash floods, that bury bottomlands with debris, 
and produce sulfuric acid that poisons all downstream waters and generally brings utter desolation to an entire region. The oncoming generation should know that government is heavily implicated in this program. The coal produced by strip mining is produced cheaply and its lower cost is attractive not only to business but to TVA who uses it extensively in its standby steam plants. The power it produces is cheap power but the cost of the public measured by the loss of the glories of Appalachia is enormous. TVA, unlike prior exploiters, has a reclamation program to restore the land once the coal is taken out. But why, I ask you, does our beauty have to feed hot furnaces when other sources of energy are available? Alfred de Grazia has spoken of the inability of science to shape the policies governing the use of science. Quote, few scientists can be made immediately useful in the policy process of science. Most are uneducated to the tasks. They do not understand the nature of the ideology. They seem not to know their own psychology or their patterns of social behavior. They do not know how their organization works or what its policies are. In the end, how can scientists be trusted to fashion solutions to a wide range of social problems to which their special hardware competence must contribute? The answer, he says, is that they cannot unless and until there is the equivalent of a Copernican revolution in the form of a sociological revolution in science, natural sciences as a group will continue to constitute a dead weight in public and professional policy, or worse, a potential force of evil, quote, quote. That is why the phenomenon I have mentioned should be taught in our schools and not left to the tutelage of the scientists. Racial prejudices also plague our educational system. The Anti-Defamation League of B'nai B'rith recently published an account called The Treatment of Minorities in Secondary Textbooks, which reviewed 48 leading secondary history and social study textbooks that are most widely used by our public schools. The study showed that a majority of these uh, textbooks, quote, present a largely white, Protestant, Anglo-Saxon view of history in the current social science book close. It went on to say in summary, quote, the complex nature and problems of American minority groups are largely neglected or in a number of cases distorted, quote, close. This study has four aspects. Textbook treatment of the Jews, of minorities under Hitler, of American Negroes, and of immigrants. As to Jews, the report says, quote, only a few describe past and present participation by Americans of Jewish faith and or descent in the many phases of our national life in adequate manner, quote, quote. Over a third omit the, the Nazis entirely. Even when the topic is included, quote, the number of victims or the international reaction and consequences of the Nazi assault on innocent people seldom get adequate space or fair presentation, quote, close. The story of the American Negro, report says, is primarily told in reference to slavery and the post-Civil War period, seldom in terms of the hard reality of modern life. Quote, with extremely few exceptions, photographs and other illustrations continue to show an all-white America, not an interracial and increasingly integrated nation, period, quote, close. 
While the European immigrant is treated sympathetically, the report says, quote, there is virtually no improvement in textbook treatment of the Asiatic immigrant who is still shown in most cases as a strange, unassimilable outsider presenting a threat to the living standard of Native Americans. Little attention is paid to America's increasingly significant Spanish-speaking immigrant and migrant groups. Little is said in favor of these groups. In several cases, negative stereotypes are still presented, quote, close. We do, I think, need a new start on our history books and on our social study texts if we are to educate the oncoming generations to the exciting challenges of our multiracial nation and of the multiracial world. Work and income are deeply ingrained as our ethic, and they were valid in a scarcity economy. But now that we can have any degree of abundance we want if we only press the right buttons, our future education entails training for leisure. We have about completed the circle back to the ancient Greeks. At that time, free men spent their time in leisure, in learning, in arts, and politics, and the slaves did the work. We are entering the age where the machine has taken the slave's place, and this promises to produce a more humane society, one that's not wholly sparked by the profit motive. But it entails basic changes in our society and the evolution of new sets of values. But this, in turn, will require new educational techniques, new horizons for planning. Our people have been taught through all our media communications that communism is evil. And residents of a free society who spent time in communist lands know how stifling life there is. But few of our people really know what communism is like. Thus, in recent years, legislators and educators alike thought our schools should do something about teaching communism. Some states laid down standards for courses on communism. Florida, in 1961, provided, quote, the course shall lay particular emphasis upon the dangers of communism, the ways to fight communism, the evils of communism, the fallacies of communism, and the false doctrines of communism. <laughs> quote, close. Some textbooks I've seen do just that. They teach that communism is all black and democracy is all white. They emit, emit propaganda and, and do not bring insight. If communism is all black and democracy is all white, why are the islands of democracy so isolated and why is the domain of communism so large? What is the power of the communist movement at the world level? What are the means of combating it? In Israel, where parties are freely formed, the communists are weaker than in any other Middle East nation. In India, where the illiteracy rate is 78% and where grievances pile high, the communists have only 41 members in the national parliament of 745, or less than 6%. Why are they weak there and strong in Cuba, in North Vietnam, in Indonesia? Questions of, this, uh, questions of this kind go to the very vitals of our existing world order. A modern history book would not be complete without some inquiry into them. The Florida statute goes on to say, quote, the course shall be one of orientation in comparative governments and shall emphasize the free enterprise competitive economy of the United States of America as the one which produces higher wages, higher standards of living, greater personal freedom and liberty than any other system of economics on earth, quote, close. Are we still free enterprise? Or have we too become collective? What about the price supports in wheat, cotton, and other commodities? 
what effect is the annual $53 billion budget that the Pentagon had on our industrial complex? What about the vast contracting business with the federal government where costs are underwritten and profits are virtually guaranteed? What about automation and our growing ranks of permanently unemployed people? I think that much of our education is obsolete. If we bring education in history and social study and studies into the modern world, we will need some new teachers where we will need new horizons. If, moreover, we are to adjust our teaching materials to bring into focus the diversities in life at home and in overseas cultures and societies, we will place the new process on the whole process on a, on a new axis. New materials will have to be designed and room made for them, and this will be a Herculean effort. But it is necessary, I think, if we are to be more than puppet, puppets of modern propagandas. If educating youngsters for life in a world of nonconformity is to be our goal, we need a quick start, for otherwise the revolutions that are about to encompass the earth will find the American mind largely unprepared. We need not turn all education topsy-turvy to meet the needs of this diversified world, but we must attune our teachers to the needs and demands of a diversified world, to the virtues of nonconformity, to the honored place in the sun which the maverick, the dissenter, and the nonconformist must enjoy. We deal basically with inequality of talents and viewpoints among men, and the great wonders which that inequality can, can produce. The world has become one community, whether we like it or not. And our problem is to produce harmonious living even where multiracial, multireligious, and multi-ideological differences are acute. Madison Avenue cannot educate us to life in that diverse world community, for Madison Avenue is a mouthpiece of conformity, and so is science. American ingenuity is, however, I think, equal to the opportunity. First, by allowing every person, no matter his color, creed, or predilections, equal opportunities in education, in employment, in professional competition. Second, by making education the means for insight into the forces that have put science into collision with human rights, man's greed into collision with nature, and man's prejudices into collision with the brotherhood of man. And third, by using educational techniques to honor man's revolutionary capacities to create free institutions and to promote what the president recently referred to as a world made safe for diversity. Thank you very much. You have been listening to a program from WEVD's Tape Library, important broadcast of the year. Tonight's broadcast featured an address by Justice William O. Douglas entitled The Nonconformist in Our Society, given at City College in the first of the Morris Raphael Cohen Annual Lectures, established as a memorial to the distinguished philosopher's memory. This was a public service feature of WEVD. Dr. Vincent Schaefer whose pioneer scientific studies led to worldwide interest in weather control, has a message for New York State students. Someone once asked me whether I could recall a teacher who had influenced my life. Yes, I can. A high school teacher in Schenectady. She aroused my latent interest in earth science. I hope we'll always have able teachers like this in New York State. But no matter how enthusiastic our teachers are, students must work hard or harder in response. The world is full of mediocrity, 
of people who just want to get by. We need more who are burning with a desire to understand their surroundings, our earth and its environment, the living creatures that inhabit its waters, land, and sky. Young Americans live in an age of unlimited opportunity, but they need both ability and the will to do. With this will and hard work, there's no limit to the intellectual achievement possible to students in America. WEVD AM and FM in New York and now welcome to Interludes in Music, a recorded feature and we have chosen to play for you Massonet's Lucide Ballet Music. Robert Irving conducts the London Symphony Orchestra. <laughs>
Thank you.